Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? I'm, I'm very good, Andrew. That's what's up. People are more concerned about you. How are you? Oh, me? I'm fine. Don't you worry about me. Don't ever worry about me. Why? Because of the North London Derby? Yeah, and then the Eagles take a shellacking from oh. the Dallas Cowboys. Well, yeah, that, that wound is still fresh. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's two, I wouldn't say mortal wounds, because you're a sports fan, you know how these things work, but those are two, two, two stab wounds, definitely, in the yeah. sporting side of Andrew Gundling. Absolutely. I will say that my expectations for my teams, um, that, that plays a large role in affecting what my mood will be after a horrible loss. Now, and I would say the nature, the nature of both of those losses, the Eagles on Monday night and the North London Derby for Tottenham, they were very similar in that like they were so one-sided. Um, and in other years, I would say both of those games collectively within a 24-hour time period would have absolutely ruined me. Um, but my expectations for both of those teams are low. And so while I found it hard to watch, uh, not in any way enjoyable, truly disappointing. It didn't, it didn't necessarily ruin me the way uh, it would have in another year where my expectations were different. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And also, and I, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to be glib or funny here. Well, maybe I am. But you are a, a realist. Uh, I wouldn't call you a pessimist. You are a realist. You do enjoy your life. But you know, even outside the sporting sense, you are prepared for the crushing disappointments that inevitably follow. Always. And that's a good way to be, I think. Uh, sometimes, yeah, I guess so. This was probably one of those times. Like, if you if you think your team isn't very good, but you're still gonna like put a, put your fist through a wall after you get beat bad by a rival, like you can't go through. It's hard to go through life that way. You have and to manage so your expectations, and with that, your mood after horrible defeats. And so much of that these days with fans doing those things when their teams are already bad, like. Putting like if there's a Cleveland Browns fan, uh, and I, we know the Browns are better now than they have been in a long time. But if there's a Cleveland Browns fan who's putting his fist through, you know, through the drywall in his home, we know that's performative. You know, a lot of this is performative. There are fans who are psychopathic like that, but a lot of it is just you know because it's shareable because you can put it out there. Um, which is also a theme I think we'll get to in, in this podcast. But, uh, but enough, I digress. I am wasting time. There is football from the weekend to be talked about, and football uh, must take precedent. Yeah, so much of it. Uh, we're going to talk with Danny Higginbotham later in the show. We loved speaking with him during our EPL preview podcast. And so we're just, uh, we thought we've got to do it again. And so sure enough, he'll be back uh, a little bit later on in the program. So I'm, he's great, man. I'm very excited to, uh, to do that. Uh, before we get to him, though, JJ, so you you wanted to do something today. I wanted to do something. No, we had a production meeting. Uh, you threw oh. out a few ideas. You threw out a idea, and I pretty much I didn't even give it a chance to breathe. No, it was ruthless. Uh, ruthless. I was the uh, yeah. I was I was very forthright in saying I didn't want to do it, and I thought I just wanted to talk about the game. So as always, we use some kind of a device. And so we've created, what's the deal with? What's the deal with airplane peanuts? And what's the deal with the razor blade slot in the bathroom? And what's the deal with lampshades? <laughs> Basically, it's, uh, 
Seinfeldian comedy to try and talk about uh, what's going on and what's the deal with some of the stories and teams in the Premier League from the weekend. Yeah. So you smashed my idea into thousands of pieces so we could go back to a sitcom uh, from what, 20 plus years ago and uh, and use that as a, a vessel to get into the, the stuff. You're very topical. If nothing else, you're always very up with current events. Oh, it's 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 more the case that, uh, you know, what's the deal is people will still say that in fandom. If, if you're talking to a guy at a bar about your team, what's the deal with such and such at the moment? So it's fine. It's a device that works. Is it a bit 1990s? I'm trapped in the 1990s, Andrew. I recently purchased online an umbro drill top, a retro umbro drill, tro- drill top that, that players would have had in the mid 90s um, because I saw it online and I love the nostalgia of it. And uh and yeah, I'm trapped in the 90s. It's I'm, I'm so scared for the, the grandfather or the great uncle that you'll be one day because you are just, you have it written all over you that you're going to be that guy who just can't wait to tell everyone how good things used to be and how terrible things are now. And the, I'm not go- the I'm game's not- gone. I'm sure that phrase will be used thousands of times when, when you're in your 70s. Uh, I'm really, I'm nervous for how the youth will look at you one day. What are you talking about? I'm already that person right now. <laughs> I, so think about how terrifying it can become. All right. Well, let's just get to it, shall we? All right. So so do these have to be introduced in some sort of Seinfeld impression voice? Well, you should do it, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Allow um, me to be everybody's fool. <laughs> okay, go. Uh, all right. So the first one here, what's the deal with over-the-top apologies? I mean, do we really need to say sorry for everything? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Slightly a little bit more, um, how should we put it, panicked and <laughs> like that set. If that's at a comedy club, that set's not going over well. But yeah, what's the deal with over the top apologies? Bruno Fernandez. So mm. he took a penalty in a match that Manchester United wound up losing by a goal and he missed it. And immediately he took to social media to pen an essay <laughs> on how sorry he was for it. Yeah. Now I've wavered at times on these in the beginning uh, you know, we saw apologies after matches and I, and I would sometimes think to myself, uh, wow, look, look how much he cares. Like, look how much this is affecting him that like, he knows the fans are hurting. He feels terrible. There's a bond between this guy and these fans. And that was kind of my initial viewpoint on these apologies. And then they continued and then continued and, for, and continued, and then it kind of built up to this with just this long, flowing apology after a thing that just happens. Like, it's not like he, you know, if it's a horrible red card because you were, you know, you did something moronic, like, okay, but guys miss penalties. Like, it's not anything that requires you to stand and get down on bended knee. And like, so now I'm starting to wonder, and maybe this is too cynical. But I'm almost wondering now if it's crossed over from showing how much a player cares to almost like a, a desperate mode of, of pandering to just like make sure like he's is he actually that sorry or is he just doing everything he, that he possibly can to prevent fans from just like tearing into him on social media? I don't know. Maybe that's too cynical. No, it's not cynical. I think you're in the right area. What is cynical? What is beyond question, you know, there is no two ways about it, is Manchester United social media team who takes to Twitter themselves 
United always fist mon- hashtag Monday motivation. And they make their own little graphic of a crestfallen, downtrodden Fernando, Fernando, uh, Bruno Fernandez staring into the ground with his tweet, right? I will come back stronger for me because these are the standards I hold myself to. But most of all for my teammates and our fans. And right below it, it has all his teammates uh, always on my team. Uh, that's from De Gea official. Cristiano, fist bump. Um, uh, yes, we are. Uh, Nemanja Matic, I think that is. Jesse Lingard, two hearts. Like, so basically, I tweeted this out. Unnecessary public acts of contrition morphed into social media content for the clicks and likes. Like, we can speculate what the reasons are for Bruno Fernandes feeling he has to do it. I think you're right that he he is showing, it's a, perf- a performative thing to show the fans almost to get ahead of what will be said about him on social media, almost to kind of cut that off and, and show that he cares in case anyone would think that he doesn't, but yeah. there's no question. And, and by the way, that's not my, my implication. I probably worded that a little clunky. My implication is not that he doesn't care that he missed it. I just think in some ways it's almost like a reflection of, of the times we live in with yes. regards to social media and yeah. how vitriolic it is. And just like kind of a desperate attempt to try to like get on everyone's good side before he receives hate abuse. Right, but there's no question that United are turning it into engagement. Get yeah, but, but you do have to remember one thing about that, because I saw what you're talking about. Well, hang on. What do I have to remember? Well, you have to remember who that's for. Like, it's the Manchester United social media account. That's not for you or me or other media members or other pundits or fans of other teams. That is for, essentially, that is for Manchester United supporters. And they will view this differently than we will. They will look at that and say, you know, that they love to see how together their team is, that they love to see that, no, you know, it, other players on their team have back. That, that's for United supporters. It's it, not it, for Andrew, us. Andrew, if they, yeah, and that's treating Manchester United for, uh, supporters like slobbering morons. Like, who honestly thinks that Jesse Lingard is going to greet Bruno Fernandes in the dressing room? Who's afraid Jesse Lingard is going to be, you bastard? What have you done missing that penalty? Like, no one thinks that. Absolutely nobody thinks that. This is for United, for engagement, for the clicks. That that is what this is for. This is another piece. And let's pretend that this is real upset and anguish that caused him to pen this essay. That is basically jockeying, riding on his grief, on his upset, on his anxieties to create a piece of social media engagement, a piece of content. That is, that is just, it's just, and by the way, United aren't the only one that do, that do it. All the teams do it. It's just, it's, it's disgusting. It's really, and it's creepy as well. And there's no need. All right, to, calm down. To, oh, it is creepy, man. First of all, it's creepy, the idea that he felt he needed to do that. Right, he missed the penalty. By the way, it was a horrifyingly bad penalty. It was like a, it was like a point after kick in, in football. It just went straight up and over. Um, I've seen, I think I saw a kick like that at Penn State once that was a point after and it nearly cleared the net at the back that keeps the ball from hitting uh, supporters. It went so high. But, uh, you know, he shouldn't, like he's been the heart and soul of this team in terms of creativity since he joined. His numbers are fantastic. The idea that he has to write this tome, this extract from the Torah, it's so long. This script is just, it's, it's, it's grotesque. It really is grotesque. What has happened? Like, there used to be like, or maybe there wasn't. Maybe it was always this way. We just didn't have social media. But I'm going to imagine a, a land and a time where, where fans were educated and were sensible enough to realize that mistakes happen in a game. 
and they're not on purpose. You know, it's it's and it's it's not through a, a lack of of character or a lack of uh, of moral fiber that he did that. He just shanked his penalty. It's as simple as that. Yeah. With, uh, you know, I I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's it, and and I do find it weird and odd and disgusting. And you know, maybe it's the background I come from. So like, you know, being a Roman Catholic, it I I always found it strange that I had to you know confess my sins and be contrite to an intermediary you know i couldn't have a a one-on-one conversation with god god i had to tell a guy at an appointed time i had to go and see him and tell him about my sins and when you're 12 years of age and your biggest sin is pinching your sister in the shoulder or stealing a twix bar and you're meant to be so contrite i understand performative contrition so maybe it's me that gets tweaked by this maybe it comes from from my 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 christian background i would love to be that person for you now if you if you ever need to confess your sins i'm happy to lend an ear and by Uh, the way if i find out that you're stealing twix bars today i will call to the authorities immediately (laughs) you would do that wouldn't you in a heartbeat wouldn't think twice imagine father Father gundling bless me father for i have sinned like usually the priest would just sit there kind of and and unless he was a real pain and he you know he'd let you get away with like you could confess two things and the priest was like oh this is awkward enough let's get it over with three hail marys two our fathers get on with it but uh-huh. you you wouldn't be like that you'd be like the priest that goes go on and um <laughs> right almost and then, entrapment and then i lied slightly on my tax return go mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Uh, and then um I, I i kissed a friend of mine behind my girlfriend's back go on You'd be that priest. Right. Uh, yeah. One moment, son. Uh, yes. 911. I have a, uh, a fugitive on the loose. <laughs> Here's his address. Yeah, okay. Back to you now. Continue. Um, no, I, look, I, get, I obviously get what you're saying. I, and I started this by saying that I, I agree with it. I think it's gone over the top. And with regards to penalties and, and needing to apologize for them, I mean, I said after the Euros, and I still feel this way now with regards to Rashford, Sancho, and Saka, like if a guy misses a penalty and you're gut reaction like of course you can be disappointed you want your team to win but if your gut reaction is to spew hate speech to that person as opposed to like putting your arm around him because like it's a thing that obviously anyone who misses a penalty is going to feel awful about uh then like i think you have to do some self-reflection on your own because like that's that's a you problem Um, yeah me by the Um, way just just to wrap up because we're gonna talk with uh danny higginbotham about united uh, a bit more in depth but Andy Mitten, the editor of United We Stand, wrote this. After a fantastic start against Leeds, Solskjaer's side were mediocre against Southampton and nothing more than okay at Wolves and against Newcastle. Sunday's game was awful and the team have yet to fly. I think that's a, a fair summation of where we're at with United. Three defeats in four games. Pretty shocking. Uh, all right, should we go to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Can you, how about you do a, a Seinfeld impression? What's the deal with North London? Good is bad. Bad is good. I don't know what's going on. Uh, let's talk about it. North London Derby, JJ. So I have, a, I obviously have a bunch of thoughts on this. I oh, want to start good. with the Arsenal side of it. All right. Because they were, I mean, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, uh, and I'm only speaking within the confines of this game. They were spectacular in the first half. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way around it. But, uh, like, Here's the stuff that I can't deal with. And I'm sorry to go negative so quickly, but there was this I saw from Gail Clichy afterwards, um, who played for Arsene Wenger, worked with Mikel Arteta. So he knows both guys. And he said this, 
Uh, Arteta has so much knowledge and he had the luxury to learn from Pep. Uh, this was to be BBC Radio 5 Live. I really believe in the long term he could be the next Arsene Wenger. He's quite young and I truly believe given time he will prove people wrong. Do we have to do this? Like a week ago, Arteta was fired. Like he was a disaster. Mm. They played a game against an arch rival and they won in fantastic fashion. Now he can be the next Arsene Wenger. Must we do this? I totally agree. It's so silly. By the way, you know, there's there's that kind of feeling amongst Manchester United fans, or or there was about Solskjaer. Um, There is no more Ferguson's. There is no more Wenger's. The game isn't like that anymore. It's it's almost it's it's almost going to be impossible. It will be impossible because the circumstances are different for Arteta to be the next Wenger. That is not happening. And why do we do that? Well, it's the it's the wildly oscillating nature of football right now. I think Arsblog put it best. This is the best way to, to, to sum up the Arsenal performance without veering into that kind of hyperbole. The team played well to a man. We scored some lovely goals and played some cracking football at times. It makes it even more special when it comes at the expense of your local rivals. But this is much more the kind of arsenal we want to see in terms of how we play. Mm-hmm. That it was a team packed full of new players provides hope. Hope that we can continue in this trajectory. That's all it did at the weekend. And, and, and for me, I look at the team that played. So we have Gabriel and Ben White centre-backs. You have Thomas Partey, Granit Xhaka in the middle, Martin Odegaard, and you've got Saka, Emile Smith-Rowe, and Aubameyang up front. I like that team, yeah. but do I think that's a team that's going to go on and just be brilliant all the time and put in that kind of first half all the time? No. And not to not to pile on Spurs, because that's your job today. We'll get Andrew. to them. We'll get to them. Yeah, but, but that was a Spurs performance that allowed Arsenal to be the best versions of themselves. And they're not going to get that kind of space in every game. So I would say, yeah, very encouraging performance from Arsenal. But, you know, it, don't compare it to Wenger. It won't be Wenger. Don't compare it to anything except hopefully a step on, as Arsbach says, a trajectory. I think the thing with Arsenal about this win that was like any win over Tottenham was going to be encouraging. What this, what took this one to an even higher level of encouragement, if you're an Arsenal fan, is like if you go back to our preview podcast, one of the things I remember saying about Arsenal is that they're going to need a touch of good luck to get back on the right track in that I don't know if it's going to be some massive signing that comes in and changes their trajectory. It's going to have to be coming from within because right now I don't know if they can get that caliber of player in the transfer market and coming from within means you're going to have to get a little bit lucky in that these potential gems that you have in Emil Smith-Rowe, Bukayo Saka, those guys have to actually blossom into being superstar players. And when you see them in particular play the way that they did in a game of that magnitude at the ages they are, that is true encouragement. That is something that will make every Arsenal fan feel wonderful in watching because those two guys were excellent, especially in that first half. Uh, so, you know, props to him. Like that was, you know, for Emil Smith Rowe, that was a huge occasion. He's a super young player and he rose to it. You know, so, and Saka as well, scoring, both of them scoring in the first half, making good runs, uh, giving Tottenham fits all throughout. So, uh, that was, you know, and then mix in the fact that like Obama Yang looks back on it the way he played in that game. 
so, and like, I, you know, so much of what we talk about with Arsenal that concerns us has been their defense from over the years. It's almost hard to even judge their defense because there was just like, especially in the first half, there was just nothing no. coming back the other way that even really gave you a chance to look at them. I mean, Ben White won a good header that set up the first goal, but like, other than that, I don't even know how much to say about the defending. Yeah, that's true. It was uh, it was a nothing zero duck egg from from Tottenham in that first half. And they were better in the second half, but I mean, anything yeah. would have been better. Literally doing anything would have been better. Um, Nuno Espirito Santo said, I decided bad, didn't make the right decisions, and I refuse to go much further than that, which is a really cryptic way of saying I think the players bear some responsibility. Or, says, or it's a player in particular. If he says, I decided bad, it, maybe to me that means he's, he's playing someone that he now knows should not be playing. And we'll find out in the weeks to come when we see when we compare that Tottenham 11 with their next Tottenham yeah. 11, then we'll find out, I guess, who he was referring to. He goes, um, all I have to say is I'll say it to the players among us because we must solve the problem. I have a message for the fans. By the way, you do not want to hear a manager saying, I have a message for the fans in the fifth or sixth game of the season. You don't want that. A message that we are disappointed because today was a special game for all of us, for our fans, and we didn't achieve the standards that our fans deserve. So I promise we'll try to fix it. Um, here's the problem with them hmm. why I don't see this why I don't really see this getting much better Oh God. because well look that doesn't mean it just means for me that means it's a mid-table team um, and it means that they are not what they were after the first month of the season because I mean even when they were winning I don't know that they were very good yeah, you know, they scored. In three, fairness, they scored three you goals. Said that you did say that. You I were, did say that. Yeah. Um, you know, against Wolves, they you know, look. Granted, a lot of the shots weren't of high quality, but they conceded something like twenty. They gave it like twenty-four shots against Wolves. Uh, you know, so, like, we always said that they were much the way that they did for some of the Mourinho era, except Mourinho seemed to have a better idea of how to spring them back in the counterattack with Son and Kane. They're not doing that now. Uh, so they're not scoring goals in in the the level they were under Mourinho, but they're still a, they're still forcing themselves to absorb that kind of pressure in defense, and they're breaking. I mean, nine goals conceded in their last three games. Not to mention they gave up a two 0 lead in the Carabao Cup, and it caught back to two two against Wolves, only for Tottenham then winning in penalties. But like, I don't. I, I have yet to really see anything from them, even in their best performances that tells me, okay, there is, there's something there. And I don't know now what to think of players versus manager in terms of who's responsible here. Like this is now three different managers from Pochettino to Mourinho to Nuno, where it's looked a lot like this. And yet I look at the squad and I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong. I still do think that it's a good team. Um, so I don't know what, like, I don't know if they've been sucked into some vortex of negativity where like the culture has just taken a turn for the worse and they can't break out of it. I don't know. Is it entirely tactical? Uh, is it just players like Harry Kane who don't want to be there? And I'm not saying he's not trying. I mean, you saw after he gave away possession, he fought like hell to get back. And unfortunately kind of a, a bad bounce for Saka goes right back to him and he scores, but uh, I, I don't I don't know what they do to get out of this. They're gonna, what it's going to be is they're going to fire the manager. If this continues, they'll fire him. Um, 
I don't know. I don't have any clue who the, the solution would be. I feel weird even talking about that at this stage because I, I don't think we're there yet. I think we got to get to at least January for something like that to happen. But that is what they'll do. And I don't know. I don't know what changes this. If this feels like this is kind of who they're going to be for this season and, and perhaps beyond, because I don't know what the quick fix is here. I don't think there's a quick fix, but I think in apportioning blame, surely you have to look at Daniel Levy in terms of what he said during the search for a manager. Uh, I can't remember where I read this quote, but he said something like, we're going to look for a manager who plays the attacking kind of football that our fans expect and that the coaches in our academy are bringing our youth players through to play. And then he goes and appoints Nuno. Like, sorry, that's not... (laughs) That's not going to get you that kind of attacking football. And, and what's worse about that is, and what's more concerning than anything, is that if you're going to be a Nuno side, then you shouldn't see, as, as Jamie Carragher said, more spa- uh, less space on the moon than there was in that game. So the midfield should be tighter, the defense should be better, and it's just not. Oh, the midfield uh, is a horror show right now. And again, that, that's part of my confliction here is that, like, in Dombele, Hoybier, like I do think that some of the players that are in their midfield are good, but so what are they being asked to do and what are they not capable of doing and who is that on? Well, you that's on the, the manager, manager, but 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 like I said, we've seen it now for multiple managers, a couple of whom, no, whatever you think of Mourinho, like he's a good manager. Pochettino, we believe, is a good manager. Mm. I mean, like, so I don't know what to think here. It just, it all feels wrong. And in, in talking about the direction of the club, I just saw this morning, JJ, this is not just me being an o- overreactive. This is the general feeling of watching this team from everybody who's been watching this team, because I saw this, the, um, the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust sent out this tweet earlier today. Um, they said, over the past few weeks, we've been contacted by an increasing number of trust members and the, wi- and the wider fan base who are extremely concerned about the current direction of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Uh, part of our role is of a tr- as a trust is to ensure the club's board are fully aware of supporter sentiment. So we have asked for a meeting with the club's executive board to discuss both the short and long-term strategic vision for the football club. And they go into a little bit greater detail here of how worried they are about where things are going. Uh, so this is not just like a thing that happened overnight. There has no. been a steady build to where things have gotten to with this team. And now the supporters trust is requesting a meeting with oh, the club God. to discuss the direction that things are headed. A listener of ours, Gregory Toxic. It is toxic. And on that point, uh, Gregory Cohen uh, tweeted us, can you guys please explain to my American brain how Spurs have become so bad while having the exact same players, well, not the exact ones, but and new good players uh, as when they were good. So I asked him, tell me when the last time they were good. And he said the fall of 2018, which I think is, okay, we'll, we'll, put, it, we'll put it to the fall of 2018. Now, I know you have your own answer on this. My answer is that, they had a, a very specific system and way of playing that had been fostered under Pochettino. The team needed renewal and, re, and, and, and serious injections of cash. But while that was those last couple of seasons under Poch where that renewal should have happened and where more players should have come in, it didn't happen really. What happened was that they were built in the midst of building a really expensive stadium. So all the team building was put on hold. Um, you've lost... In the last 18 months or 12 months, actually, less than that, two cornerstones of your defense, your two center backs. You have Eric Dyer in there. That's not really working out. You have a want-away striker. You have, ha- you have one of your key youth players has 
has come into the start of his peak years completely out of form, Delhi Alley. Uh, you've been relying on Sun and Kane for, for so long now. Uh, and you've appointed two managers back to back who do not fit the profile of the club or the team or the players that they have in Mourinho and Nuno. That's how you get here. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, mm. I don't have a ton different to say about that. You're right in that when the squad needed freshening, there was none to be had. Like I, I hate looking at specific moments. Obviously, it doesn't come down to one thing, but just like you look at Daniel Levy and, you know, granted, he's done tons to get Tottenham to the profile of, of club that they're in. So I, I don't want to just sit here and, and, you know, spew all the cliche lines about how he's the devil or all that. Like hmm. he's done so much good for this club, but you, but he's made mistakes. Like you, if you believe what you read and hear, they were within 4 million pounds of acquiring Jack Grealish. When we, in a time when we knew that Jack Grealish was a star like he allows those kinds of financial differences to get in the way of acquiring certain players and it's worked for them at times, but other times then they're trying to behave like a super club. That's also behaving on a budget of a mid table side. And it's like, well, all right, you can do that and it'll work for you every once in a while, but it will also blow up at times. And, you know, they chose not to sign anyone in a time where they could have really kicked on. And and now it's, it's going the other way because they didn't freshen the squad players are aging out players are wanting to leave and be told they can't. And it's, it's just turned into an ugly situation, but at any rate, uh, all right, we still have a few more here. You ready? Yep. All right. What's the deal with the top of the table is man city, the best team after all. I mean, really? They've now kept five consecutive clean sheets. JJ in the Premier league, third longest such streak under pep. Um, they didn't just keep a clean sheet at the weekend against Chelsea. They went to Stamford Bridge and they made sure Chelsea didn't even get a shot on target. Incredible. Uh, this, boy, the top of the table is something. I think so far it has been, it's really been what we thought it would be, that this would be very competitive between multiple teams. Um, I thought that Chelsea was the best team in the league. Uh, I think... I don't want to vacillate all over the place, but there are narrow margins right now. We all, like I just said, we know that all the teams up there are really, really good. And so when you see Man City go into Stamford Bridge and shut Chelsea down the way that they did, I think it's fair to then reconsider your position on that. I, I think, uh, I think in the mark of an intelligent person, Andrew, uh, which is not, we haven't seen much of this in this country or the world in the last seven, eight years, but is someone who can- from atop his pedestal. No, but I'm just saying it's someone who can change their mind when new evidence is presented. Yes. And the evidence at the weekend was, you know, uh, let's just look at Thomas Tuchel, who in cup semifinals and in the Champions League, I said had Pep Guardiola's number. And it was no surprise to me that uh, Werner was key in his, in his thinking for the weekend's game. Uh, only once... During this game, did we see what Tuchel would have wanted in transition? And I can remember it clearly because it only happened once. As Piloqueta cleared the ball, Lukaku held it up in the middle of the field, spins it out to Alonso, who plays in Werner down the left inside seam. And it was the one moment I think I remember where in that first half where I thought, wow, Chelsea got at Manchester City. Uh, City's pressing was incredibly good. Gabriel Jesus put in one of those performances where you're like, he is doing all the hard work 
you would want him to do and making sure Chelsea can't play out. However, he missed a chance where Pep would have, I think Pep went apoplectic. I think he did one of those things where he's like King Lear on the heat screaming to the sky. Um, remember that ball that comes across and there's, I think there's no one in goal. There's just one defender and all he has to do is connect connect with it properly and he hits a weak shot that's cleared off the line. I, I can't remember who cleared it off, but but how and ever. Oh, yeah, um, I remember that. Uh, Tiago Silva did. Tiago Silva. That's I wouldn't right. say so, it was a weak attempt. I mean, he side-footed it and Tiago yeah, Silva just... He's got a score. Nice back. Yeah, no, he does, but Thiago, sometimes other guys make great plays too. Like, I'll, right. I'll give Tiago Silva some credit there. That was really well done by him. Right, but otherwise anyway. it, was, it, was, it was dominance. Like, it was... It was like one of those boxing matches where it goes the full, the full 12 rounds or whatever, however many rounds there are. And, you know, it's a points decision, but it was really, I mean, it was a battering, really. It was, I mean, City were DXG even 0.2 to 1.7. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was very, very good. It was very, very good for Manchester City. And um, what was interesting for me, one little, little wrinkle in this, that I'm going to have to watch. So, so Tuchel has been doing these great things for Chelsea over the last, well, basically since he came in, winning the Champions League. But most of it, the majority of it has been done without crowds, uh, you know, without Chelsea supporters in the stadium. And the murmurings of discontent uh, in the stadium and a few people on Twitter as well, that Chelsea weren't taking the game more to Manchester City, you know? Now, I would argue when City are in that kind of form where they're pressing and they're maintaining possession, what are you supposed to do? You can't get the ball off them. Um, but yeah, there was that first time that there's been any kind of, you know, grumblings of discontent within the stands. Um, and there was a real kind of, come on, get at them vibe from the Chelsea fans, which was not reciprocated on the field by the players. Yeah. And Tuchel said something that kind of made me think about that afterwards. Um, which I thought was interesting. He said, I did not feel the belief. It felt like we had something to lose. Hmm. Found that interesting because that has not been Chelsea's approach against Manchester City. Do you think there's anything to the idea? And look, calling Chelsea an underdog under any circumstances feels silly, uh, given the quality of their players, the pedigree of their manager, and of course, the money that is poured into this team. They're no one's underdog. However, in the past, in the recent past, when they face Manchester City, that is the role that they take upon themselves. They are the underdog. Now, you know, you and I, whoever, like we've been talking about Chelsea as being the best team in the league and they are reigning European champions. Um, I wonder if if playing the other role here is one that they need to grow accustomed to. They are not the underdog anymore. You know, if, if this group of players, you know, Mason Mount, that's like guys like that, not to say that he's at fault, but, you know, some of these guys, that's that's really the only role that they've known um, when it comes to them going up against Manchester City. And now it, it felt like it was starting to turn and Chelsea were that club. I wonder if that in any way plays into the psyche of some players out there when like now they have to feel how it is to be the guy that everyone is, is gunning for. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. There's also, uh, you know, we should factor in Chelsea aren't going to be brilliant in every single game, just as Liverpool aren't, you know, we can talk about how great man, the managers, Pep Guardiola, Klopp and Tuchel are, but with the amount of resources at other teams, the, you know, the ability for, you know, other teams to, to find ways to get at these sides, you know, there's no infallible sides and, and 
like I said, when City play in that fashion, like forget about underdog mentalities or, you know, being on the front foot. Chelsea had find, found a way last season to cope with Manchester City and they tried it again and it didn't work. City tweaked it. City got back to their, their core beliefs. And, you know, when they get in possession of the football, Andrew, like, like any team that's like the great Barcelona teams of under Guardiola, it's very hard to do anything with them. It, it's very, very difficult, even if you have N'Golo Conte in your team. And, um, you know, Tuchel still, in, in terms of the head-to-head, is still ahead of Guardiola. But, um, yeah, it wasn't the case at the weekend. And what's going to be interesting now for Manchester City is that this is they've got PSG this week, which we'll talk about on Thursday's pod. They've got PSG, and then they've got Liverpool on Sunday. So if they can get, what, two wins out of that three games... That is um, that city up and running again, and the the slow season start will soon be forgotten. Yeah, which is a thing that they have, which they do. You know, the slow start last year. Maybe this has kind of become a little bit of their DNA. They get rolling, and then once they do, they become unbeatable. But we'll see. We shall see. There's still a lot of season to go. Uh, all right, next one. Yeah, let's do it. You want uh, me to do it? Yeah, sure. I mean, what's the deal with Jamie Vardy? I mean, does this guy ever age? Ever hear a crow's feet? More like nose crow's feet. Oh, Am God. I right? Now he's no? going off script and it's oh, it's God. painful. Oh, no. Uh, Jamie Vardy added again two goals over the weekend. Really three. as He had he, he began with an own goal. There, I, I'm trying to remember the stat. I think since 2016, um, only two players have scored a hat trick of this kind. Two goals for their team, one goal for the other. Can you Vardy did it. Can you name the other one? Uh, no. I believe it was Tammy Abraham who did it. Uh, was it last year or two years ago? Okay. Yeah. There you go. So does he ever age? Um, I mean, <laughs> not I <put> really. That, <laughs> I, put, I put those specific terms into Google. <laughs> I threw in uh, Jamie Vardy and uh, aging into into uh, Google and it pulled up a Daily Mail article from last year that said he's installing a cryotherapy chamber at home to boost recovery and um, he's returning record low body fat readings in preseason. But it's not so much his age now, Andrew, that kind of got me really interested. He started in the league in 2014, 2015, and he was by no means some young buck. He was 26 27 direction in that very first season. His first season in the top flight. And now this is where he finds himself. He's 35 in January. This is the company he's in. He's ahead of Steven Gerrard for Premier League goals. All right, Gerrard, ostensibly a midfielder. He's 120. He's level with Dwight York, Manchester United, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers on 123. Um, Nicholas Anelka is ahead of him on, on 125. Robbie Keane is only three ahead of him on 126. And then he's going to be uh, next in his sights will be Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Robin Van Persie on 144. Be interesting to see how close he gets to him. But um, Teddy Sheringham is on 146. And he had what? A, a, a 35-year career? <laughs> like Teddy Sheringham played till he was what? 40-something? Maybe not in the top flight, but certainly he was in his late 30s still playing for West Ham. This is unbelievable stuff what we're seeing from Vardy. It really is. Uh, I, I totally agree. He is 
pretty much been this consistent player for years now for them. And yeah, the years, uh, the age has not really worn into that. Um, yeah, he made his, uh, his Premier League debut. He was 27. It looks like, um, when Lester 20, their- 27. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So he's done all this in less than a decade. Mm-hmm. And he only left Fleetwood town in 2012 to join Leicester. I mean, it's yeah. incredible stuff. It is. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about Leicester, uh, just beyond only him. Um, because it, they, they got a draw out of this one and it's been a little bit of an uneven start to the season for them. Um, and I wonder, you know, we all, the thing we always talk about with them in their quest to remain one of the big boys, despite not having that kind of budget, you know, is if like that kind of tired Lester conversation of depth and just at what point is it going to affect them? Um, you know, Brendan Rogers talked a little bit about that. He didn't necessarily say that it's a problem, but you know, he, he did mention after this game, the injuries to, you know, not having Fafana and Johnny Evans, you know, what that does to their shape. Uh, they're asking a lot from Sion Chu and Yannick Vestergaard. You know, James Justin is still working his way back from ligament damage back in February. Uh, Johnny Evans, I think, will be, he was on the bench, I believe, for this one. So, you know, he will be back relatively soon, but Fafana's not coming back this season. Um, so, like, already we're in the early stages of the season. They already have injury problems in the back, and they're trying to do this while, you know, maintaining their form in the Premier League and being a threat in the Europa League as well. So it's it's going to be hard for them. And that kind of speaks to what they're going to need from Jamie Vardy because he's the reliable veteran who can just, no matter what, keep scoring goals. And, you know, we'll see if he's able to do it throughout the course of the entire year because they're going to need it. It's It's not going to be as easy for them, I think. No, I agree. One of my bugbears also emerged in this game for Vardy's second goal. Nick Pope goes a wandering. <laughs> Sometimes the goalkeeper should just do nothing. Just stay where you are. It was it was just dreadful. And Var- you could see Vardy's face. He was like, what, what? Okay, perfect. Now he slides it in from a, you know, a fairly difficult angle, but not for a striker like Vardy. Yeah, I don't think Sean Dyche would have been happy or happy with the fact that they thought they'd won the game at the death only for VAR to intervene. Yeah. Tough one for, uh, for poor Sean Deitch. Also, uh, Brendan Rogers, something I saw him talk about was that he was, they, there were some boos when he took uh, Adam Lookman off. And Rogers basically said that, you know, things have been so good since he got there that that hasn't had to happen, but he thinks he tried to, you know, in his way, put a positive spin on the fans of booing course. that decision. Well, um, we love the character of the fans when they boo us. <laughs> Shows passion. Yeah, that's essentially it. That's pretty much what he said. Yeah. Um, all right, one more, and then we'll get to Danny Higginbotham. Okay, let's do it. All right. Uh, JJ, our last one here. What's the deal with Everton? I mean, are they just teasing their fans again? I, I didn't get this one. Because you'll well, have to explain. This, I like, feel like this is kind of a thing that Everton do, where they have like these strong they, – they have these great patches of play, and I see their fans kind of get hooked. And then things happen, and next thing you know, they're ninth, or tenth, eleventh. Yeah. And I wonder. So right now, uh, Everton are tied for second in the league. Four wins in six, just one loss, one draw. They're fifth on goal difference, but on points, they're tied for second right now. And you look at the teams that they're with. It's like them, United, City, Chelsea, like and Chelsea. It's and Everton, and then Everton. Um, you know. So like, is it happening again? 
Now, here's where I would caution Everton fans to get too excited. Be excited, by all means. Like, this has been a start that has probably exceeded some expectations. I know there was not enthusiasm around Rafa coming in as the manager. They didn't do a ton in the transfer window. They just lost Hamas Rodriguez. Uh, so, like, be happy with where they're at right now, certainly. But I would say this. Their four wins are Southampton, Brighton, Burnley, and Norwich. Their loss is Aston Villa. Their draw is Leeds. They haven't really played anyone yet. Like, and I don't mean that as a slight to Brighton. Um, they played Brighton, they beat Brighton, and, and Brighton have had a good start to the season. Um, but like, you know, if they're going to remain, <laughs> they've gotten off kind of easy so far in terms of what their fixtures are. Now, I'll, in fairness to them, we didn't know that like what they would be. Like if I were to say, as long as Everton beat the teams they're supposed to beat, then they're going to be a good team this year. But coming into the season, we didn't really know who the teams are that Everton were supposed to beat. Are they just kind of like mid-table mush themselves? They've shown at this point who they are and that, you know, some of those teams that we weren't sure they should be beating, they are, you know, Southampton, teams like that. So I give them credit. They've, they've established themselves kind of back closer to where we thought they would be, you know, like a, from Everton of a couple of years ago. Um, but eventually it's going to get harder. Uh, their next couple games, I think they have Manchester United and West Ham are their next two. So we'll learn a little bit more about them. Um, yeah. And I, so far, I, so good. I think Andrew, uh, coming off a three nil defeat away to Aston Villa was comprehensive beating from Villa and then going out of the league cup to QPR, a two nil home win against Norwich was if, if that had gone the other way, I think we'd be having a different conversation about Everton right now. It's very early. Don't forget, though, you're on about the, uh, the, them being teased again. I mean, the ultimate tease was to be second at one point at Christmas last season in December. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah. We, we'll, right, we'll that's what I'm see. saying. Yeah, is we'll this, to... this is a familiar look. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I actually don't know where I am with them yet. I don't. And, and I, have, I like, you know, I like Rafa, and I think he can, he can get results. But uh, I'm just not sure about this squad yet. We will, we will have to see how they weather Everton, West Ham, and then Watford, which will be uh, interesting games. Yeah, certainly. Uh, all right, we'll go ahead. We'll take a, a quick break, JJ. When we come back on the other side, Danny Higginbotham is going to join us. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that. Don't go anywhere. More caught offside still to come. Oh, back now on caught offside. So excited about this. Back during our EPL preview editions, we were fortunate enough to have uh, former Premier League star and current NBC sports soccer analyst Danny Higginbotham on the program. And uh, it was so good. The reaction to it from not just you and me, but from all of our listeners was it was through the roof. And so we thought, okay, let's let's ride this feeling. Let's do this again. And so sure enough, back with us again, Danny Higginbotham on the program. Danny, what's up, man? How are you? I'm very well, gentlemen. How are you two doing? We're yeah, doing we're good. good. We're doing we're good, well. Danny. Um, I, I, I just want a quick question, Danny. You know, if you were if you were uh, being produced by NBC as you are, uh, and you had probably the game of the weekend uh, between Brentford and Liverpool, you wouldn't do what Andrew did with his producer hat on and decide to ignore it for the first half of the show, would you? Oh wow! So, ba- yeah, there, there seems to be a little bit of uh, what I call snobbery here, then. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what's going on, Danny, but, you know, the fact that we've had to wait this long to discuss, for me, what, what was the marquee game of the opening few weeks of the Premier League suggests that Andrew just has no regard for either Brentford or Liverpool. It's one or the other. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and discount Liverpool here because I don't think that it would be for that. Maybe, maybe 
did you know there's only one league in England? It's the Premier League. That's it. There's, there's no teams below that that get promoted or anything like that. So it could be that, but I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt, obviously, for you know, if it's another reason. Yeah, and English football only actually began in 1992. It's, it's funny you should say that because, yeah, that that's apparently seems to be the case. Yeah, <laughs> just start, just started when the Premier League started. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, we say in England that we create the sport. Well, I don't know if it's if it's if it's total bias of the fact Brentford haven't been in the league since the 40s, but I'm here to talk a bit of Brentford Liverpool with yes. you. And and just to show Danny that I, you know, I'm a Liverpool supporter as you know. I'm not but I'm I'm not going to look at it from the from the Liverpool angle to begin with. I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. cuz you said some very interesting things uh over the weekend about this game. What was it that Brentford did so effectively that made Liverpool so uncomfortable for that game? They the, one of the things that I love about Brentford, they do, they what what you call, they trust in their process. You know, I think to just talk about this game in a snapshot is very difficult. I think there's so many things that have enabled Brentford to put on performances like that, to get promoted. And I think it's the club, the way that it is, the identity, the model of the club is up there with the best of the clubs in in the Premier League. You know, I'm not talking about on the pitch. We know that obviously they've got one of the smallest stadiums, the smallest budgets, but is in terms of what the club stands for. For example, they have two directors of football. They work two windows in advance. So they're, they're sort of preparing for players that potentially they're going to lose. So, you know, you look over the years, they lost Mopé. They, uh, he was then replaced. They bring in Ollie Watkins. Then he goes. They then replace him with Ivan Tony. Um, and they scour the league and it's it's sort of a money ball the way that they go about it their scouting network but it's unbelievable and they love playing the under tag the under tag role you know thomas frank the manager calls them a bus stop in hounslow which is obviously a borough <laughs> in london and just the, the way that they do things is magnificent over the last few years I've, I've built up a really nice relationship with thomas frank and and i'm delighted for him and, and everything that, that, that the clubs stand for the way that they're going as well and I think the performance over the weekend, it was no surprise to me because I've been fortunate enough to cover them in the championship before I moved over to America and saw what they were doing. And they will be a threat for anybody because defensively, they're obviously strong. They now play with a back three, uh, which can be a back five at times. But then when they go forward as well, they've got a lot of creativity. Uh, people don't really talk about the set pieces. I think they will be doing now. They had, they've had two different set piece coaches one was taken by Manchester City, one was taken by Arsenal, um, and now they do it between themselves. So they're very, very strong on that. I think that the technical element, the tactical element as well from Thomas Frank is brilliant. And they cause Liverpool a few problems. And one of the things that frustrates me is when you see one of the bigger clubs go to a so-called lesser club and they don't get the result that everybody's expecting. Everybody talks about the bigger club playing, playing poorly. And not enough respect is given to to the smaller club that has that has got the result. And I just thought Brentford were absolutely magnificent. They caused a lot of problems to Liverpool. Yes, Liverpool could have wanted the chances that Mane and Salah had, but Brentford had more chances as well. So it was a, it was just a really good game, a great advertisement for the Premier League. And it just goes to show that you know this is one of the biggest clubs in world football. Recently winning the Premier League, recently winning the Champions League, and, and Brentford who just come up from from the championship and, you know, more than held their own. And it, it, it's just what makes it such a great league. 
Danny, you said specifically, though, you talked about the fact that nowadays, when me and you were growing up, it was 4-4-2. And that two was mm. pretty pretty much written in stone that most teams played with two strikers. And you said at the weekend how Liverpool were so discomforted by having to deal with Tony and Embuemo up front. Yeah, it becomes it becomes it becomes difficult at times because it, it's not the norm now. And you know, Thomas Frank, he went to a back three through not through choice last season, but he 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 was basically forced into it because Dalsgaard, who's no longer at the club, and um oh, and, and and the the fullback, the the left back, his name's just escaped me, who's had a great start to the season. I can't believe his name's escaped me. Played left back at the weekend. Um, they they were both injured at the same time. He didn't have any traditional wingers, so he went to wing back. And I asked him about that, and he said that you know our intention was if we were to get promoted, that we were always going to play with wing backs because it gives us stability in defence, but not just that it enables us to play two up front. Because if you look at Brentford ordinarily, they've always played four three three. They had you know, the BMW for, for a year, which was highly, highly thought of, you know, and Burma was still there. They had Watkins mm. and they had Ben Rama, you know, two of the three have gone now, but now you've got Ivan Tony and you've got um, Bomo who have got a really good understanding going forward. And as a centre-back, it's something that you're not used to now because more often than not, it's two centre-backs against one centre-forward. And yes, you've got to deal with maybe a number 10 looking to, looking to come forward or you've got, two outside players, <coughs> excuse me, that want to come forward as well. But it's just a different, it's a different set of circumstances. And when you look at Ivan Tony and when you look at Mbomo, the two strengths that they've got, they really, really complement each other. Yeah. And I think it was shown yeah. against Liverpool, you know, every time, every time the ball was played up to Tony, he, he had the runs of Mbomo. And another thing as well, you look at Raya in goal for Brentford, sensational performance from him, but people forget he's probably one of the best distributors of the ball at his feet in the Premier League. He's absolutely incredible. And every time he gets the ball, you can see just 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 out of shot, Ivan Tony and Raya looking at each other as in terms of, okay, I'm going to get the ball to you. That beats any press from the opposition. And then, like I say, you've got then Mbomo, who's got the pace then, who will rely on Ivan Tony holding the ball up or flicking the ball on. So they have a, they have a different manner of, uh, of, of ways that they can play because in the Championship, they dominated possession. I think there's an understanding in the Premier League that they're not necessarily going to do that. So they've just, they've just tweaked the way that they play a little right. bit, but they've settled in really, really well. Rico Henry is who you were talking about. Rico Henry, sorry, and I apologise. He, funnily enough, we were talking about him off air and, you know, you've seen what's happened to Luke Shaw. He got injured last week. You don't know if he's going to be available for the upcoming internationals. Uh, Chilwell's obviously um, our favourite Chelsea. And, you know, he, he would be a player that I would be looking at and thinking, Rico Henry, the way that he started the Premier League season, you know, England are short of fullbacks at the moment. Why not give him an opportunity? So it's going to be interesting to see. But he's had he's had a great start to the season and was absolutely sensational in the championship as well. Danny, in, in watching the uh, the penalty drama of Aston Villa and Manchester United, I was so struck by Emiliano Martinez of Aston Villa. He's yeah. emerged as just one of the great world-class trash talkers. We saw it in Copa America. We saw it again yeah. in this penalty situation. And when we talk with you, one of my favorite things in talking with you are some of your memories and your stories. And I'm just curious, when you're watching Martinez 
do that. Are there any guys where it takes you back to your playing days and you think of, you know, hearing similar trash talk from goalkeepers <laughs> or other, like, who are the, who are the guys that, that were so notable in behaving that way? I had two situations, one that involved the player and one that involved the weather. So when I was at Stoke, we played, we played Derby and I, I was obviously at Derby for a considerable amount of time. And the, the kit man there, I called uh, John Davidson. Um, he, he was a really, really good friend of mine. And the goalkeeper for Derby at the time, we got a penalty. And um, it was Bywater who was in goal for Derby. And as I'm putting the ball down on the spot, he just came up to me and not, not trash talk or anything. He just said, um, you know, the kit man, Dave, and I was like, yeah, he went, he says that you and me look alike. And we were just staring at each other for about 10 seconds. Then he just walked off. So, th so that was a bizarre one. Fortunately, the ball went in the back of the net. And then the other one was when I was at Stoke, we played Tottenham at home and we got a penalty. Actually, Gareth Bale got sent off really early on in the game for a, for a foul. And that was why the penalty was given. And the ball, obviously, the weather is well known at Stoke. You know, they, they talk about a, a cold, wet and windy night in, in Stoke. The ball rolled off the spot about six times as I was trying to take the penalty. Oh. And it just became, yeah. And then obviously you've got all the fans, they're getting excited, they're, they're building up and then the ball just rolls off the spot and then it's just a, a collective sigh. And this did this for five or six times. And by the time I was actually ready to take the penalty, it wasn't me against the goalkeeper, it was just me against the ball. Um, and it just kept going on and on and on. So they're, they're the two different things. But going back to Martinez, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, like you've quite rightly said, he, he did it in the Copa America, worked an absolute treat. And what he did, which I found fascinating, was that when the penalty was given, and obviously Fernandez is going to take it, he had no interest in Fernandez. He was just talking to Ronaldo, you know, saying to him, why are you not taking it? I want you to take it. <laughs> and I think, I think without, well, I'm not sure that he didn't realise, but I think a lot of people have been thinking, oh, okay, he's trash talking Ronaldo, but Fernandez was in the middle of this. And I think that he started to feel a pressure because he would have he would have thought to himself, so many people would have been expecting Ronaldo to take it. Ronaldo allowed him to take it. You know, he's usually usually more more often than not reliable from the penalty spot. But I just think that Martinez got in his head and then the penalty went over and then he turned around to he turned around to the fans and started celebrating. It's it, it, it was brilliant. But what I must say is that, you know, speaking as a neutral, I didn't even think it was a penalty. I thought it was very, very harsh. I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm, uh, maybe I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the sequence. Uh, so, of a, so the ball, the, the ball was crossed in. Right. And Cavani flicks it on with his head and then it, it hits Courtney Hawes. And, you know, when you're looking at penalty decisions, you have to look at it and go, is your arm, is your hand, is it in an unnatural position? And for me, it was only a few, a few inches away from his side. And I don't know what he's expected to do in that situation. Okay. And, and I just feel in those situations, common sense has to be brought in. And I don't think that common sense was in that situation. There's no, there's no specific reason that I look at that and think it's an unnatural position because it just wasn't. It was a circumstance where Courtney Hawes is unaware what's going to be happening with Cavani. He's got his hands just a little bit to his side. But it's not an unnatural position, you know. So, you know, people will say that justice was done, but I just don't think it was a penalty. Um, and common, se common sense 
surely has to start prevailing soon because you have to take into account the situation and 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 how the player finds himself and and for a player to have his his arms consistently behind his back it's just not going to happen because then you can't balance yourself you can't make the movement that you want to make to go and you know try and win a header or try and block a shot danny um three defeats in four for united now um out mm. of the league cup midweek which for a squad as big as Solskjaer's is just problematic in terms of, of getting minutes. Um, what's your level of yeah. concern with the way things have worked out for Solskjaer since, since that opening salvo against Leeds United? Yeah, I, I think one of the things is, you know, you look at the Leeds United game, you look at the Newcastle game, all of a sudden everybody's saying Manchester United are back. And then, you know, they have these disappointing last three games and everybody's saying, oh, you've got to sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. There's no in-between with Manchester United. You know, and that that's always been the case. It comes with the territory and, and Solskjaer has has spoken about that. There's no doubt about it. The pressure is on him this season because he's gone out and bought, yeah, yes, he's 36, but he's still one of the best players in the world in Ronaldo. He's brought in Varane, arguably one of the best centre-backs in the world. And he's brought in Sancho, who is one of the most, you know, one of the most talked about young players in world football. So that intensifies the pressure. I think the expectancy levels that are there becomes an issue as well, especially when you've got Fernandez, you've got Greenwood, you've got Ronaldo, you've got Pogba all on the pitch and you're and, and you're really struggling to score goals. But I just think at the moment, the one thing that that stands out to me when you're playing against Manchester United at the moment is that United, for all the plays they have in this team, they're still a better team on the counter-attack. That needs to evolve. Yeah. I think one of the things that happens, I've been in this position many times myself before where I've been part of a team that's that's playing the bigger team, whether it's, you know, a few years ago when it was Arsenal, you know, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool. When I would come up against those teams, one of the things that we always did and one of the things that we always said was that we had to give up a part of the pitch. It was simple as that because we knew 11 v 11, they were better than us. But we had to give up give up a part of the pitch that we thought, right, we can deal with this. And that's what's happening with United. United are playing against teams now that are defending deep, they're defending narrow. The deeper you become, the more narrow you become. So therefore, the width is there for you to go into. And the problem is, is that United don't have the ultimate width at the moment because Greenwood, Pogba, whoever it is that are playing in those wider areas, they want to come and join in in the number 10 position. So what happens is, as a fullback, you're then dragged in with a Greenwood, with a Pogba, with a Sancho, whoever it may be. The fullbacks are dragged in. So the space that the opposition are then given to United is the wider areas, which is for the fullbacks to get forward. Now, Wambasaka, defensively, you know, been very commanding. Getting forward is something that he's still improving on. Right. Luke Shaw gives good width, but at times probably you would want him to get forward even more. So what's happening is the areas which has been vacated by the opposition, United aren't taking full advantage of it. And when you have a player like Ronaldo in the box, if you've got Paul Pogba going into the box, if you've got Cavani going into the box, United aren't a team now where it's like every time we get forward, we've got to cut the ball back because we've got no physicality in there. We've got no players that can, that can challenge centre-backs. They have got players that can do that now. And I just feel at the moment, every time, not every time, but a lot of the time when United are getting the ball and going forward, their first four is in field. And that that is music to the opposition's ears because that's where they're congesting the pitch. You look at Liverpool. 
two of their most attack-minded players are the two fullbacks. You look at Chelsea, you've got Alonso that gets forward, you've got Reese James that gets forward. Um, you look at Manchester City, the fullbacks will get forward. Um, so that's something that I think United have to improve on is 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 more width and, and more more ability to get the ball into the to get the ball into the box. That's not the case when they play City, when they play Liverpool, when they play Chelsea and, and so on. But when they're playing against a very good Aston Villa team, when they're playing against teams that are going to sit back and, and be deep and narrow, then you have to try, in my opinion, and use that width more. And that's that seems to be a little bit problematic for United at the moment and was one of their issues last season as well. Danny, one more from me. Uh, just yeah. the, North, the North London derby over the weekend, Arsenal. Uh, what is real and what is fake here? Are they good? Are they terrible? Or are they kind of what they've been in the recent past, somewhere in between those two things? It, it was just such a, a jarringly positive performance from a team that we hadn't yeah. really seen much of that from. I'm just curious for your thoughts. Um, it, it's a difficult one because I think one of the things that, that we always do in England is – you you know you're you win a game while they're back you lose a game or oh, it's the end of the world when in all reality there there is a building up period you know from from last season's side of things I looked I looked at it and the amount of Arsenal games that you covered and it just wasn't working and you always thought to yourself that my opinion was that Arteta was a great coach but not necessarily a great manager and there's a big difference between the two because I've had great coaches that have gone into management and it's not worked. And I've had great managers that don't necessarily do the coaching because they trust the coaches that, that are working with them. But last season, I'm not saying it's going to, but last season could end up being a blessing in disguise for Arsenal. You know, it's a very young team. You look at the likes of Smith Rowe, you look at the likes of Saka, uh, you look at the likes of Odegaard, you look at the likes of Tierney. You know, they they went through they went through a lot last season. Young players that were being asked to, to carry the club to a certain extent because the senior players weren't really doing their bit or, or playing their role in the team. And, you know, that that could have been a blessing in disguise for what they're now coming up what they're now coming up with. But what I would say about this Arsenal team is that it was a wonderful performance uh, at the weekend. But what I would say to to probably go against that was the it was probably one of the worst performances that I've seen from a from a Spurs team in recent years. They were that bad. They played into Arsenal's hands. Arsenal could play exactly as as they wanted to play. But what you would look at now from from an Arsenal fan side of thing is that there's something to build on now. You know, it's 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 been a season which has started. It's not been great, but defensively, you know what they they've been they've been okay. Obviously, Manchester City they they got beat five, but Manchester City can do that to teams. Um, they haven't, they hadn't scored enough goals, but you know, Sunday it seemed to be a case where everything came together. But it doesn't mean because you've got one result that everything's going to be okay. And I don't think anybody would be foolish enough to believe that. But there's something to build on now. You've got a young squad, um, a play, a, a group of players that play with confidence now because of what they went through last season. They will have grown through it. Um, but there's still a long way to go, and I think. I think the question marks are still definitely out on Arteta and the coming weeks will, will tell us more, you know, leading up to Christmas, if this was a turning point or it was just a flash in the pan. Danny, last one for me. Uh, Leeds United. Yes. I can see West Ham mm. United fans already rolling their eyes because they'll want to talk about how great the start yeah. of the season has been under David Moyes, etc. But I ask you about levels of concern 
regarding Manchester United. Levels of concern if you're a Leeds United fan right now. I saw Elan Messier, the goalkeeper, tweet out, it's coming, as in the good football, the signs are there, the results just have to click into place. Is that what you're seeing or, or would you be more worried? No, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with Leeds United. I'm, I'm absolutely fine with them. You know, one of the, one of the things you'll get with Leeds United is that they will, they will, you know, completely dominate a lot of games and score a lot of goals, but they'll also concede a lot of goals. You know, I remember, I remember when Bielsa first got the job at Leeds United and I was covering the championship at the time. He was asked about, you know, plan A, plan B. And he always says, and he always reverts back to it, plan B is to do plan A better. He's not going to change. Right. That's the way that he is. They've had, they've had some injuries, which has obviously derailed them a little bit, but, one of the things I would be saying is that there are there are three worse teams than Leeds United in the Premier League. They, they, in fact, there's there's more than three teams that are worse than Leeds United. So, as a Leeds United supporter, I wouldn't be too concerned. Um, you know, one of the one of the things isn't you know people talk about the second season syndrome when you come into the Premier League, where the first year it's all fresh, it's all new. People don't know how to how to deal with you. You know, teams last year couldn't deal with the fact that Leeds United played man for man all over the pitch. But then what we started to see was teams saying, right, okay, we're going to have plays that are going to be selfless. If we're going to be man marked, we're going to go into out, we're going to go and stand on the touchline that will create space for other players to come through. And we saw that on occasions last season, we've seen on occasions at the start of this season as well, but I still think Leeds have got, got more than enough to come through. And, and we can't forget as well that, you know, Leeds have had injuries to key players at the start of this season. And, with Bielsa, more often than not, you'll see a team sheet on August, August, mid-August, and that team sheet will near enough be the same come November. He doesn't tend to, to mix and match his team that much. So therefore, when you get injuries within a team, it's usually to key players. And those key players can be replaced because there's players that come in and know what's expected of them, but they're not up to that standard because they're not playing week in, week out. And that's one of the problems that Leeds have is that Bielsa doesn't rotate. So when they get injuries, it can be it can be a, a huge problem for them. But I have, you know, you're hearing it, people are saying, oh, they're concerned about Leeds. I don't have any concern about Leeds United whatsoever. You know, it's it's getting closer, like Melier said, you know, and things will turn for them and, and they will carry on regardless with their style. And that's just the way that Bielsa is. People may call it being stubborn. But he believes in the process. He believes in how he plays, and he believes in the plays that he's got. And I think that they'll be absolutely fine. And, and the paper rumours of a possible United swoop for Calvin Phillips—that is completely daft. That won't happen. Um. Uh oh. Speak. No. Speak. Speaking with with the United head on, I would love it to happen. I remember about what was it? Two and a half years ago, I wrote a piece on. Calvin Phillips and I said that he should be in the England squad now this was when he was playing in the championship and the amount of people that got in touch and went I don't know what you're on about what you're talking about you don't know what you're talking about but I followed Calvin Phillips for a long time now people forget he used to be an attacking midfielder people forget that he was one of the top goal scorers under Paul Heckingbottom before he left and was replaced by Bielsa people forget that it was Bielsa that turned him into a defensive midfielder. People forget that he's not just a defensive midfielder. He's also one of the best passing midfielders in the league. People also forget with the system that Leeds United play, that he does the job of two players in the system they play when they play a 4-1-4-1. And people don't think about that. So when you see an England lineup and people say, oh, why are we playing with two defensive midfielders in Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips? 
well, go back to the Euros and look at the assists that Calvin Phillips had. Look at the opportunities that he created. Calvin Phillips can be a defensive midfielder, but he can also be an attack-minded midfielder. So if I was Manchester United, 100%, I would be going all out to get him because I think he would be perfect for Manchester United. The issue that you have, as you two well know, is that the rivalry between Leeds United and Manchester United is huge. The history of Calvin Phillips being a Yorkshire lad, being Leeds United through and through, is also huge. So does that throw a spanner in the works if Manchester United want to sign him? Quite possibly it does. I think Because, does. yeah, as far as I can remember, the last, I think you had, who was who was the last player? Obviously, Eric Cantona moved from Alan Leeds United Smith. to Manchester United. Did Alan Smith go straight from Leeds to Manchester United? Yeah. I think, I think he, he did. did. And also Rio Ferdinand did as well. But I think the difference is two of those, well, two of those three players that I've just mentioned, their background wasn't Yorkshire. Right. Their background wasn't a Yorkshire, Lancashire, Red Roses and, and White Roses type background. You know, Calvin Phillips is. Alan Smith was. So that makes it a little bit different. But as far as a signing and as in terms of the icing on the cake for what Manchester United are trying to do, I would love Manchester United to sign Calvin Phillips. Realistically, would it happen? If Calvin Phillips was at any other club, barring Liverpool or possibly Manchester City, I could see the transfer potentially happening because I think he's the ideal player that United need. But because he's at Leeds United, a club that there is no love loss between Manchester United and Leeds. A lot of people don't realise the pure hatred between those two teams mm. and two sets of supporters. People look at United-Liverpool. United-Liverpool is the biggest one. Then it's United-Leeds. Then it's potentially United-Arsenal. Then you're talking United-Manchester City. But Leeds is huge, so that could be the one that could be the one, the one thing that, de that deters anything from happening. But as a United supporter, I would have him at the club tomorrow, 100%. Oh, well, good stuff, man. Boy, I love these conversations with you. It's so great. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll be hitting you up again as the season progresses. We'll be uh, listening to you on NBC and with the Philadelphia Union as well. Danny Higginbotham, thanks again, man. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, Danny. Our thanks to Danny Higginbotham. Great stuff uh, in speaking with him. Um, JJ, I know you've played at various levels of, uh, have, yeah, have, have you one level, the bottom various, have various you dealt level. with, uh, S housery of, uh, the Emilio Martinez variety? Um, nothing. I like there's, since I moved to New York, there's always, and again, I, I am not uh, profiling anyone from any particular country or area, but I will say that the, the Greek Americans or Greek Italians who come up against, they, it's not that they're S-houses so much as they don't stop talking to them, to their own teammates, to the referee, to the opposition. It's very much, it's like one long animated, heavily hand gesticulating conversation all the way through a game occasionally it boils over occasionally but generally speaking it doesn't um yeah no there's there's always someone um there's always someone in the team in the opposition team that's that's the chatty one uh, and it depends if that turns into s housery not rarely enough rarely enough i'll tell you someone uh craig bellamy i used to watch him play and he would never stop talking and then you find when the guy retires all these players come out and say 
he was the worst to play against. He would, he would literally tell you your legs have gone. He used to do that to, he'd be going past defenders and he'd be, he'd be talking to them, telling them, you're not going to catch me. Your legs have gone. Um, and even his own teammates, Alan Shearer, of course, and him crossed swords at Newcastle. Bellamy stands out in, in, the, in the chatting, S-housery, non-goalkeeping uh, scenario. Uh, let's see. We're going to be back with another podcast later this week to recap the Champions League action going on mm-hmm. midweek. Before we get out today, one other note I wanted to mention from MLS. Uh, FC Cincinnati and Yapstam have parted ways. You Why can see you this it like that. Yapstam. It's the only way you can say it. Um, Cincinnati, by far the worst goal differential in MLS since he had taken over. They were at minus 44 in his tenure with Cincinnati. Uh, Inter-Miami were next at minus 23. Also LA Galaxy at minus 23. That is a significant gap. They were leaking goals at a horrifying rate and also not scoring them. Uh, They had the fewest goals scored during that span, uh, excluding Austin FC. uh, Go look up the stats. Uh, about non-American MLS coaches who come in with no background in North American soccer. Just, just have a look at that. It's, um, it's horrifying. Uh, Paul Kennedy tweeted this. I just found it. Mm-hmm. I was afraid I couldn't find the tweet. Paul Kennedy, who is the editor-in-chief of Soccer America, a great follow. Since January 1st, 2020, 13 coaches, all foreigners, without previous pro coaching experience in USA or Canada, have held MLS head coaching jobs. Only one has a winning record during that time frame. And that's Ronnie Dahlia of the NYCFC. Mm. And you can even argue that the job he's done has not torn up any trees. But uh, that is... That's interesting. It, I, I think there is a, a, a specificity about this league and about the way the game is conducted here, and about signings, and about travel, and about everything. Yeah. And um, it suits the guys who have been to this rodeo before. And remember, they spent $13 million, Cincinnati did, on Brenner, uh, Brazilian forward, right. entering the season. Um, he has nine goal contributions this season, which is tied for 46th in MLS. Just not getting enough out of no. the guys that you are investing in. No, um, I remember how excited we were about that signing. But um, yeah, then their next move will surely be someone with uh, with background in the league. Maybe uh, maybe Luchi Gonzalez. Maybe Luchi Gonzalez moves uh, moves north. Hmm. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, that's about it for me, my friend. Yeah, just one quick one. Uh, just uh, in, in it's only a week since. Jimmy Greaves passed away, but Liverpool's record league goal scorer, Roger Hunt has died age 83. The club have announced Hunt, who was also part of England's 1966 World Cup winning lineup, scored an unrivaled 244 league goals for the Reds. So um, I saw this stat about him, which is pretty amazing to me, JJ, because oftentimes when I see the numbers like that, that are that high of goals scored for a player, you think, I wonder how many penalties are in there. Not that it takes away from it, but how about this for Roger Hunt? So the stat here, Liverpool's second highest goal scorer of all time with 285 goals, um, only one of which was a penalty. That is... Really? That's what it says here. Only one of the 285 was a penalty. That's insane. That is elite level goal scoring from open play. Um, it's... 
it's sad for the passing of these great great legends, but if it does one thing, it serves to show that you know, pre-Premier League and uh, back in the day, there were some unbelievable players and strikers putting up unbelievable numbers. I mean, Hunt and Greaves combined, what a front line that would have been. Yeah. Uh, so rest in peace to, uh, to Roger Hunt. Indeed. Uh, great player. Uh, that's about all we got for today. We will be back, like I said, later this week, probably Thursday with a, a recap of the midweek Champions League action. And uh, JJ, we're only about a week away from another international break which I'm now in a weird place in life where I can't wait for them. I need more international breaks. Uh, I know, Andrew. The Well, it's, it's also an exciting time for us. We're, we're very busy in those international breaks. We don't get a chance to breathe. So, Yeah, the word break is like not the right word. It's not a break for us. The international frenzy is about a week away. Yeah, and, and, and we also take on the hopes and dreams of an entire nation on our backs. <laughs> we sure do. You and I do. The team well, we, doesn't. We, we shoulder the weight. Oh, no, we take we shoulder all of it because we, we are the vessel through which they, they transmit their fears and anxieties. And, yep. and ergo, we take on some of them. That's a great point. Well, hey, this was a lot of fun. Our thanks again to Danny Higginbotham. We'll be back with you later this week to talk some Champions League. JJ to you, I say. Check you later, Father Gundling. I'll see you. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 